ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, you may have heard on uh, January 1, the earliest depiction of Mickey Mouse entered the, quote and unquote, public domain. But if you've already considered changing your business name to Mickey Mouse, uh, I'd just hold off for a second because copyright laws vary between different countries and are not identical, uh, far from it. However, whilst copyright laws vary from place to place, the concept of the public domain is in fact universal. But what does that mean, the public domain? Well, joining us this morning, Professor Jennifer Jenkins from Duke University. The professor is the director of the Centre for the Study of the Public Domain, so knows all about it and is here to give us a, a bit of a history. And she's on the line now. Professor Jenkins, good morning to you out time. Please call me Jennifer. Good morning, Tim. Yeah, good morning to you and uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's a fascinating subject. In a nutshell, what is the public domain? Uh, The public domain is the realm of material that is free of intellectual property rights and in terms of copyright, free for anyone to use and build upon without having to worry about a lawsuit. Okay. How did this concept of the public domain evolve over time? Well, copyrights have always lasted for a limited time. In fact, our constitution in the United States mandates that they only last for a limited time. And that is by design. The public domain is sort of the yin to the yang of the very important exclusive rights that copyright gives you. Hmm. Um, so that when those rights expire, future creators can build upon their cultural heritage. And that's part of how copyright stimulates and encourages creativity. Yeah, right. The example I gave, I mean, you wanting to call yourself Mickey Mouse Enterprises uh, probably wouldn't be a good idea, even though uh, that has entered the public domain, what, as of last year or this year? I think this year. It's this year, and as you mentioned at the outset, only in the United States. Mm. And um, in fact, there's a little bit of a wrinkle there. We were just talking about copyright law. The words Mickey Mouse, independent of the character, imagine that mouse in your head, (laughs) uh, those words are still owned under trademark law, which is an adjacent and different area of law by by Disney to the extent that they serve as a brand identifier for some of its products and services. Hmm. Um, And so those trademark rights actually still persist, even though the character Steamboat Willie, the Mickey Mouse in the United States is now public domain. Yeah. And there is a public domain day. Uh, When is that? It's January 1st, oh, so January 1st in the United States, appropriately enough, uh, because the reason that's Public Domain Day is because that is the date on which copyrights expire around the world, including in Australia. It's just you guys got a different set of works. So mm. in Australia, in fact, everything from authors who died in 1953 went into your public domain on January 1st of this year. Why? Okay. Are there specific, um, what's the expression, historical cases, legal battles that have shaped the boundaries of the public domain? There are, in fact. So um, the public domain has been shrinking over time. It's been shrinking because the copyright term has been growing, expanding, getting longer. So the longer the copyright term gets, uh, the smaller the public domain is. <laughs> so the legal battles, uh, the, the main ones in the United States, were challenges over the most recent extension of the copyright term that froze our public domain for 20 years. So just to take the example of that Mickey Mouse character, originally Mickey Mouse was set to go into the public domain here in 19. 19- we extended mm. the term. So he was set to go to the public domain again, 2004. We extended the term again. <laughs> and now he is officially in the public domain as of 2024. And so the legal battle is challenging the constitutionality of those term extensions. And the challenge was unsuccessful. And so those term extensions all stood 
Okay, while we may not, the average person, understand the public domain, why is it so important? You know, the legal minutia is way too complicated, but the average person, um, I think you just look around you to appreciate the importance of the public domain. So, you know, Greek mythology, the Bible, Shakespeare, all of these things have always been in the public domain because they were written before there was such a thing as copyright protection. Mm -hmm. So if you're an English major like me and you look on your bookshelf at everything that you've read, you can just you, you can look around you and see the value of the public domain by looking at all of the creativity that draws on public domain works from the past because the way we create we don't create out of thin air you know we we grapple evoke um allude to the works that came before us yeah so if you take any of those examples you can just kind of see the public domain all around you yeah and in your country this is fascinating there's the uh, sunny bono copyright term extension act what exactly does that entail so Sonny Bono from Sonny and Cher, yeah. um, he was a you know musician who tragically um, died you know way before his time, and he was also a member of our legislature of Congress. He was. Yeah. Um, so the reason it was named after him is uh, he actually uh, wanted perpetual copyright. <laughs> for the last forever. Um, I, I love Sonny and Cher. I'll just say that for the record. Me too. Um, yeah. So that's why why it was named after him. Um, the, the bill was actually passed shortly after he sadly passed away. Um, and that was the 1998 law in the United States that added 20 years to our copyright term. So for these older works like Mickey Mouse, it took the term from 75 years, which was a pretty healthy amount of time, all the way to 95 years after publication. Yeah, right. Um, this is an, an interesting one. And uh, I know there's been musicians who've taken their music away uh, from Spotify because they didn't want it to be there. But are there musicians who have actively sought to keep their work out out of the public domain? Um, there, there are. So when, um, you know, even though it was called the Sonny Bono uh, Copyright Term Protection Act, mm. uh, there were works from the 1920s that were set to go into the public domain, uh, whose rights holders sought the longer term. So these are works, for example, by uh, Gershwin and oh, okay. by Irving yeah. Berlin. Right. Um, who wanted the extra 20 years. But here's an important thing. The the copyright term goes way beyond the life of the author. And so it's not, it's not people who are alive. Uh, mm. The copyright term in your country is 70 years after right. the wow. author dies. So at that point, the people benefiting from copyright are not, you know, the author, even the author's, you know, children. Um, it's more distant descendants or often uh, other successors and in interests, such as, you know, corporations, rights holders. Mm. And so the copyright term lasts well beyond the death of the author. And so if I'm writing a song now, it's not like I'm lobbying, you know, for a longer term. It's <laughs> my, yeah. my songs are going to be still be copyrighted till 70 years after I croak. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, long. The, exactly. Exactly. Well, the public domain perceived, as you mentioned, by artists and, and scholars. But what about the general public uh, through he- throughout history? I mean, did the general public understand it, take advantage of it, uh, embrace it? Yes, which delights me. I mean, it's very gratifying for someone who writes these public domain articles every year. Um, Most of the people who reach out to me aren't, you know, people in my boring corner of the copyright world. (laughs) They're they're artists. They're, um, you know, community theaters. They're they're symphonies. They're high school students or parents of high school students. They're all the people who are super excited that they can now use and adapt and build upon these works that have entered the public domain. You're right. Have there been any notable debates, controversies related to the public domain in recent history, in recent times? 
Um, I think the, the 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 main controversy is still that um, nothing, no published works went into the United States public domain uh, for twenty years until twenty nineteen, right. and so the consternation was during that period where the public domain was 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 frozen, and you know, people found it difficult to understand why the conveyor belt had simply stopped. And then when it started going again in twenty nineteen, there was um, at least <laughs> from my inbox just excitement. Yeah, that, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, now. Yeah. Now, now things are going into the public domain again, and we could start actually celebrating Public Domain Day. For those 20 years, we were doing a counterfactual. Um, we were doing what could have entered the public domain because no published works were actually doing so hmm. here. Was copyright used, and I can see the potential for it being used this way, as a tool for controlling the dissemination of knowledge and, and creative works? And, and, and if so, how was that done? So I should say at the outset, I'm a copyright lawyer. I love copyright. I'm also a yeah, creator. Right. I love copyright. So copyright is a good thing, and um, it's a wonderful thing. And part of the the copyright bargain is creators do and distributors. I mean, you may not own your radio shows. I don't know. It could be your employer. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever owns the copyright, um, you know, has that exclusive right to control their works, and that's the whole point of copyright law. Right. But it's a yin-yang situation. And so that control is subject both to the expiration of the term, right. um, you know, life plus 70 years, but it's also subject to other exceptions, fair use in the U.S., I think fair dealing in your country. Yes. And so uh, the interesting thing is all of us who create, we're simultaneously creators uh, who rely on that control, but also users who rely on exceptions to that mm. control. Mm. So for example, you know, you do a radio show, if you want to quote from someone, if you want to play a song, if you want to play, you know, someone talking to the press, you may actually rely on exceptions to be able to do so. And so it's a, it's a constant balancing act between yeah, control right. and freedom. Yes, well, I work for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And I suspect they own my radio shows, not me. <laughs> I, su- I suspect that's the case, too. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, <laughs> this is fascinating. The invention of the printing press way back in the 15th century impacted the development of the public, um, uh, pardon me, <coughs> pardon me, public domain and copyright. How so? Um, So that predated copyright law at the time. Um, Of course, I mean, imagine how amazing this invention was. Oh, yeah. Um, The kinds of exclusivity that were given, they weren't given, it wasn't given to authors. There were certain, um, they called them letters patent, uh, rights that were given to the printers uh, over the stuff that they were printing so that other copyists couldn't go and print those works in certain areas for a certain amount of time. And so that was sort of the the precursor to copyright. But the reason it was significant is you know, copyright is a kind of uh, intellectual property right. Mm. But until something is fixed in a tangible medium, it's sort of hard to think of it as property. Um, so what the printing press okay, did is yeah. it made it both, you know, it, it gave us more of those fixed forms, but it also made it easier for people to print things without permission. Because, I mean, think of the days of a, of a scribe who was sitting there, you know, like painstakingly writing things out. As a practical matter, if I um, wrote a book, um, it was going to be very hard for anyone to go around, you know, printing copies of my book without permission. Hmm. Um, and so when the printing press came out, it made it easier to print. But this, this, the important thing is the Gutenberg, the printing press predated copyright law by some centuries. And the exclusivity that was given then uh, was given to the people who were printing, the, the printers over what they were printing out. And so okay. it's kind of a different yeah. system yeah. than the one we have now. Yes, you mentioned the uh, the extending of these terms. How has the lengthening of these terms over time actually affected the access to information and, and cultural works too? 
Oh, it's had a detrimental effect right. on access to the cultural information. So, in the to, to cultural to cultural products. So, in the United States, our term, our maximum term was fifty six years until as recently as nineteen seventy eight, which yeah. at least <laughs> I'm old, wasn't that long ago. Um, <laughs> and and now it's what I told you: it's ninety five years for corporate works and life plus seventy for works by people like you and me. Um, so that's a dramatic extension. Yeah. And the Sony Bono Copyright Term Extension Act that you mentioned coincided. Um, it was in the nineties with the nascent days of the World Wide Web. So just as we had the technology, the technology for the first time in human history to mm. make a lot of this material available online, uh, the term was extended. So 20 years of that were taken away. And the key thing, the key thing here is, you know, it may be all well and good for Disney to enjoy 95 years of protection. <laughs> That's great because Mickey Mouse is still popular. The problem with the term is that it outlasts the commercial lifespan of the vast majority of well, the yes. works. Yeah, right. So for yeah. most stuff, that's out there. I mean, we life plus seven years for you and me, right? How much of the stuff that we create is anyone going to be consuming, paying our great grandchildren for seventy years after our death? Sadly, ninety nine point blah 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 percent of creativity is not making money for anyone. Really, as copyright rolls wow. on and on. So the problem is these works are off limits. But they're not doing anyone any good because <laughs> most of us didn't draw a Mickey Mouse that anyone still, you know, wants yeah. to pay money for after almost a century. And so that's the that's the key disconnect. Okay. Um, well, other than yeah, other than the Sonny Bono that you mentioned, and even Mickey Mouse, if you like, any other examples where the restrictions have really been criticised for just hindering things, just holding things up, if you like. Yeah, like I mentioned, it's a balancing act, right? So copyright is good, but we also want creators to be able to use things. And so in the United States, I love rap and hip hop music. You know, yeah. one of the key things is this series of cases about sampling. Uh, sampling is uh, when yes, you're not only, yes. you know, getting musicians to replay something in another song, but you're actually using the the recording. And so because of like legal stuff. Anyway, we had a great decision in the United States mm. that said, haha, if you sample anything more than one note, you have to get permission. Now, that's just objectively wow. absurd, right? Musicians course, have always yeah. built in the past. You know, I'm sampling. Blah, 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 blah. It yeah. seems as though that should be valid under some exception or some doctrine in copyright law. And so that's just one example of copyright doctrine in the United States that really put a damper on a particular kind of creativity, which was what Public Enemy and De La Soul and the Beastie Boys were doing back in mm. the day, mm. which is sampling little bits from lots of different songs and you know, putting them together into a wall of sound, this legal development really um, cramped that creativity. And in reality, um, that's why you hear songs with fewer samples that are looped throughout, because if you have to clear everything, it's impractical to clear a bajillion samples. It's a lot easier to clear two of them and loop mm. them. And so mm. that's just one example of the expansion of copyright law getting in the way of a particular form of creativity. You're right. It occurs to me too, are there any ways that copyright restrictions have impacted, well, educational institutions and the accessibility to, to learning, for example? Well, it's put a lot of material, you know, out of reach because they're just too expensive. Oh, sure, um, right. And, um, you know, we're, we, we, we are very passionate about um, the Access to Knowledge initiative, which is sort of a global movement 
um, uh, for access to educational materials, not just to people in developed nations who can pay for them, but around the world, which is why we put all of our material under Creative Commons licenses, um, saying from the outset, hey, we made this and we want you to be able to use them as long as you give us attribution. So go nuts, you know, use them, use them not commercially. <laughs> so, um, you know, the sad reality is a lot of uh, educational materials are out of reach or are, are, are priced too expensively for a lot of the not you know a lot of not only developing countries but you know high schools middle schools yeah, yeah, right. uh, elementary schools and anywhere who would want to use them and particularly older works like i mentioned it's particularly upsetting when no one's actually benefiting from the restriction right so yeah you know oh, if you're a good you high yeah. school and you're like oh well we can't use this in our classroom because we can't get permission but no one actually is making any money from that older stuff anyway so yeah. it does happen and again it's not all doom and gloom copyright's a wonderful thing it's just when that balance, that tilt, that yin-yang, when it gets off kilter, that's when we have a problem. Is it just about making money? You mentioned making money. Or is there, you know, preserving the artistic perspective of it more important? It's both. So during the period when you have exclusive rights, um, you know, it is about an economic right to get paid for your work. But the ability to say no during the copyright term also gives the copyright holder uh, the ability to veto certain uses that they find objectionable. Mm, right. And that, you know, that's one of the rights that uh, that expires uh, when those works enter the public domain and anyone can go and reimagine them and, you know, offer their own perspective. Yeah. I'm speaking with Professor Jennifer Jenkins from the Centre for the Study of the Public Domain and uh, fascinating chat. What about, uh, I'm popping into my mind, where the restrictions have hindered the preservation of a cultural heritage or historical documents. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the 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 largest cost of the length of the copyright term. Is it? Yeah, is um, a lot of works towards the end of the term, especially are what we call orphan works. as an international term. Orphan works are where even if you wanted to get permission, say you are an archivist, a preservationist that you just mentioned, a librarian, yeah. you can you can figure out who to ask. You can't identify or locate the copyright holder because you know things change hands, companies go out of business, people get divorced. It's like who even is the rights holder of this work? And so those works unnecessarily are out there in in limbo. And so one concrete example that we we wrote a legal brief about was um, old films. So old films are were on a substrate that was subject to decay, sometimes spontaneous combustion. <laughs> um, and so there are actually films, um, you know, from the 20s and 30s that have literally decayed and rotted in their cans. So we can't ever see them again while preservationists were waiting for their copyright term to expire mm. so that they could legally digitize and preserve those films for future generations. And so that's just one concrete example uh, to answer your question. Yeah. Well, you know, we've had recent examples of a lot of people in the entertainment business getting very upset about their copyright potentially being breached. And you think, well, you know, goodness me, you've got enough money. Why are you suing somebody? Because they might have used your name. But I understand because it's uh, it's part of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And so mm. um, in the United States, we have this uh, utilitarian justification for copyright protection, which is mm. it's it's not a moral right that's premised on who you are in the United States, not in Australia. You guys have moral rights. And so this is a key divide, uh -huh. um, but on uh, the economic incentive that these exclusive rights afford, whereas in Australia, and I find this very attractive, it's just kind of intuitive to think of your creations as part of yourself and to think of 
of, you know, the the reason that you have certain rights to control those creations is the fact that you made them. Yeah, well, <laughs> right? yeah, That's a yeah. very different rationale. And so um, the United States is ha- has has very limited moral rights protection, whereas I believe in Australia, you have uh, more robust moral rights as distinguished from economic rights. Yeah, you know, once upon in this business uh, that I'm in, once upon a time, and I've been in it a long time, uh, you know, the record company rep would come around and uh, give you a bunch of singles and you played them on the radio. And that was done to promote that single and hopefully it would become a hit. Well, these days, I've got a piece of paper in front of me now and I've got to write down the artist and the song that's played and that has to be reported to, to APRA so that they know what you're playing. And I can understand, right. you know, artists saying, well, you know, you're playing it for nothing. It's my property, and uh, how about me getting paid? So it becomes, well, it becomes a very complicated thing, doesn't it? A a bit. It does become complicated. I I would assume that APRA actually is paying something when you play a song. Yes, they are. Uh, At least in the United States, you know, those those public performance uh, uh, royalties are actually going to an artist. But at the same time, you know, the counterweight is the reason that um, they used to go around and give you something to play is because, uh, uh, you know, at the same time, you were the one publicizing the song, and hopefully, when you were playing it, that was translating into maybe concert ticket sales yeah, or exactly. people yeah, buying yeah. CDs. And Precisely. so, yeah. you know, hopefully, there was actually a benefit from it as well. Yeah, indeed. Well, what about we mentioned Mickey Mouse? A- any other works that entered the public domain as of a couple of weeks ago in 2024? Well, I can tell you about the U.S. And again, you guys have to go look at all the works from yeah, authors I will. who it's died interesting. in, yeah. in 1953. Um, there, there, I just, just one example. Uh, everything from Eugene O'Neill, including the play uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, wow. went into your public domain January 1st. So fun. In the United States, we got a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we got uh, the Tigger character from the Winnie the Pooh series. Okay. <laughs> uh, went into the public domain. So every all the other Winnie character, most of the other Winnie characters went into the public domain two years ago. But uh, Tigger came bouncing into the public domain this year. Um, we had some books that were banned for obscenity back in the twenties, and so one was the unexpurgated version, the naughty version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, that's gone into the public domain here. Uh, we have uh, Virginia Woolf's masterpiece Orlando. Uh, okay. You know, dealing with issues of gender fluidity a hundred years ago, we had songs like "Let's Do It" from Cole Porter, and uh, oh. making Whoopi. Uh, wow, uh, I'm not making this up. This <laughs> no, I know, I know them. The yeah, <laughs> we had Charlie Chaplin films. Anyway, we had basically everything published in 1928. So whether it was a a, a book, a film, a song. Uh, a, a mu- piece of musical theater, um, the Three Penny Opera by Bertolt Brecht, the German version, went into our public domain this year. And so we had a, a, a wealth of works from almost a century ago mm. that uh, people are getting turned on to again now because now they're free for anyone to mm. adapt and reimagine. Wow, that that really is uh, fascinating. So um, that's 1st of January 2024. Um, if there's anyone around from the family, can they challenge that at entering the public domain on January 1? But it already has, I suppose. Yeah, not on copyright grounds. No, okay. Uh, so, yeah, and again, you know, sometimes it's corporations that still own it, sometimes it's, you know, uh, heirs. Uh, but no, there's no, you, you can't make a copyright objection now. Um, there's the neighboring area of law, but this is this is very, you know, there's a tiny subset of things that are still subject to trademark rights, such as the Mickey character. But um, that's yeah, right. a whole different body of law, and the things that trademark prevents you from doing are different than what copyright prevented you from doing. Yeah. Well, I, I just think it's a fascinating subject. And you've got a book oh, coming fun. out. If you're coming out, tell the listeners about your book. 
Oh, sure. I'd be happy yeah. to. Yeah. I, I have a book coming out. So I spent my, the pandemic, um, you know, growing vegetables and writing a book, <laughs> <laughs> which is, and, and, and being bored, I guess. So, and yeah. so the, that's, this is my pandemic book. It's called Music, Copyright, Creativity, and Culture. And um, it's about everything music because I'm obsessed with music. That's the course that I've been teaching at law school for, um, gosh, almost 20 years now. And okay. so yeah. I, I put it all in a book. So um, it's coming out from Oxford and I hope people enjoy it. Yeah. Your first book? Uh, it's my first book from a proper publisher, <laughs> from a fancy publisher. Uh, I've written lots of other books. Um, so we, my husband and I have actually written two comic books, and uh, they're free online because, like I said, we put our stuff free under Creative Commons licenses. So you can actually just Google them. You can download them. You can colorize them. You can remix them. You can pass them out to your class. Uh, one's called Theft, A History of Music. The other one's called Bound by Law. And so that's out there. And we've actually also written a, a casebook, a textbook for law school that we've been updating for about 10 years now. Mm. And that's also completely free and available online. So I've written books that I put out myself, but I thought, you know, maybe it's about time to put one out from a proper publisher. And so that's what this one is. Yeah. A bona fide one. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, who knows? The, the thing about the books we put out ourselves is we just push, boom, and there they are. Yeah, and we exactly. can make them free. And yeah. so that's that's kind of very satisfying. Yeah. Re really lovely <laughs> to talk. Project. Really lovely to talk to you. And, and thank you so much for sparing so much time with us. It's been uh, been very informative indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It was great talking to you. Yeah, um, you I too. hope you get some sleep. Yeah, yeah. Well, not for a couple of hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll see you. Thank you very much. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 